I'm Vernon Mann. Thanks for joining me for more on-the-road tales from my time as a TV news producer and correspondent in the 70s and 80s. This week I'm off to Afghanistan to cover the withdrawal of Russian forces after 10 years of occupation. It's not a rushed assignment. The Russians are just beginning to pull out and it'll take them a while. Like many before them, they've discovered it's a bloody and expensive waste of time, as America does now in 2021. There's been fighting in Afghanistan on and off since Alexander the Great charged in in 330 BC. Muslims got it back a couple of hundred years later. Then the religiously tolerant Genghis Khan and his Mongols took over for quite a while in the 1300s. The Brits fought and lost three wars there, the last one ending in defeat in 1919, and between times the Russian Empire had a go. Not to mention the Afghan tribes, who seem to be always fighting each other. It's a tough place to control, as Russia found out when in 1979 they piled in to support the so-called Democratic Afghan Republic against Mujahideen tribal Muslim fighters. Our news outfit's been pretty well on top of the story, thanks to a veteran correspondent and his good contacts with senior Mujahideen commanders and with Pakistan military intelligence, who pull a lot of Afghan strings. We're to fly to Islamabad, the Pakistan capital, and on to the border town of Peshawar, then drive across the Khyber Pass and into Afghanistan after linking up with Mujahideen fighters on the border. I've been to Afghanistan before, hitchhiking from the UK to Australia on what was dubbed in 1969 the Hippie Trail. The hippies took to the streets of Kabul and other towns not to take control like the Russians, but to hoover up the cheap and plentiful supply of drugs. In doorways and on street corners, they toke on massive joints, Europeans and Australians, mixing with GI deserters from the Vietnam War. Some had drugged themselves into destitution, having foolishly sold their passports for good money, now spent. The scam had been to sell your passport, report it stolen or lost, and get a new one from the embassy within a week or so. Boom, boom. I was offered £300 for mine by an Indian man in a tea shop. The embassies soon cotton on, though, and make it harder. They tell people to come back in six months, and if their passport hasn't been found, they might, just might, be able to supply a new one. So, many dozens of kids find themselves stuck without passports, the money they'd got from selling them quickly spurged on drugs, and months to wait until they possibly get a replacement. These were unusual, silly times. I swapped my parker jacket, unnecessary now the weather's getting warmer, for half a kilo of cannabis resin the size of a large Cadbury's chocolate bar. Top class, says my Afghan dealer, a large, genial gentleman who smells of burnt oil. Why did I do this? No idea. I guess it was because I wanted to ditch the coat and he was the only one around who was interested. It was a silly transaction and I'm not a drug user, but I tried out with a fellow traveller on the roof of the YMCA in Lahore, Pakistan, some weeks later. We crumbled it onto some cigarette papers, lie back on the rattan beds and stare at the stars and wait for quite a while. Nothing happens. I throw it into a ditch near Amritsar in India after being warned at the Indian border that I could be jailed for life for smuggling drugs. Are you sure you are not carrying anything? The customs lady asks as I sit uncomfortably on the remains of my hashish bar I've stashed in my underpants. I digress. So, fast forward to 1989. We're on a small aircraft en route to Peshawar from Islamabad. 
there are a couple of scheduled stops. The pilot remembers the first one but unbelievably forgets to land at the second, prompting a minor riot from those who want to get off. Four of them rush to the front of the plane, ranting at the captain who pushes them back, helped by a pretty useless male steward. The UK tabloids would have the headline, Hijack Foiled by Heroic Captain. We do an aerial U-turn and backtrack for ten minutes before bouncing down on a rough airstrip and letting the irate passengers off. In Peshawar, we're met by our contact, Captain Karkar, the man supposed to be organising our expedition into Afghanistan. At the moment, he's having trouble organising a couple of taxis. It's mayhem outside the terminal. Once he's sorted us out with cabs, we follow him in his hire car, which I discover later we're paying for. We follow him down a side street in what, by Peshawar standards, is a pretty upmarket area. Captain Karkar stops outside a pair of massive wooden gates. A gate guard opens them up and we enter a big courtyard fronting a substantial house. Two long wheel-based Land Rovers are parked up there. These, Karkar says, will transport us into the war zone. Two men, disparagingly referred to as boys, are busy preparing them for the trip, or cleaning them anyway. Captain Karkar, who is supposed to be from Pakistan military intelligence, is in civvies, a baggy grey suit and shades, which make him look a bit like a Pakistani used car dealer. Not that I really know what a Pakistani used car dealer looks like. He doesn't say much. He asks after my predecessor, the senior correspondent. I ask, when are we setting off? He won't say. In good time, old chap, in good time. I'll be in touch very soon. He hops in the hire car, the boys swing open the wooden gates, and he's gone. I feel disorientated. Normally with news it's go, 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 not I'll be in touch. We discover we have a cook and a couple of staff who clean and wash and press our clothes. Our temporary tenancy, what must be an embassy pad, comes with a warning. Don't let the cook anywhere near the booze. Yes, we have alcohol in a Muslim country where it's supposedly banned, although it's common knowledge that the rich are not averse to a nip or two of whiskey. And if you're a Westerner, you can get a beer if you sign a form stating you're an alcoholic. I did that once in a hotel in Karachi. The beer was undrinkable. In Peshawar, our meagre supply is locked in a cupboard, our producer, the keeper of the key. Stocks arrive sporadically from the embassy. We never ask, it just turns up. We prepare for the forthcoming trip by acquiring traditional Pakistani dress and flat pakal hats. Our beers are coming along nicely too. Captain Karkar is in no hurry. We have clandestine meetings with him behind the Regal Cinema. He will take us to the border soon, he promises. We press for immediate departure, but he will not be persuaded. Gentlemen, you are not understanding the complexities of this operation, he says. Meanwhile, we shop for trinkets and carpets. It was safe to do so then, and take carpets back to the house on loan until we make up our minds which ones we want. We visit the vast Afghan refugee camps housing two million people who fled the horrors of Soviet occupation, their ranks now being swelled in 2021 by thousands more fleeing the Taliban. The camps on a sort of lawless no-man's land have shopping streets where you can buy working AK-47 rifles, pistols and old Lee-Enfield rifles used by the British in previous conflicts. They sell drugs too, of course. Not a big surprise, given that poppy cultivation and its products has fueled a fair proportion of Afghanistan's troubles. At the house, I borrow an old bone-shaking bite from the cleaner and take to wobbling around the district every morning, absorbing the atmosphere, arousing the dogs. Early mornings, the smell of freshly baked bread, families getting ready for the day, 
washing under a communal street tap, living in shacks, but sending their children off to school in immaculate school uniforms. All very interesting, but ten days on, we're restless, impatient, the big adventure has become a big bore. To alleviate the tedium, we devise a simple chicken game, whereby we drive the Land Rover full speed at the gates, testing the alertness and agility of the gate boys, not to mention our nerves. Not once did they fail to open them on time. There was often a very, very close call. The cook, Iqbal, somehow gets hold of some booze one day and gets completely and utterly smashed, veering around his kitchen, smashing plates, knocking pots and pans to the floor, screaming obscenities in broken English all the while. The gate boys sort him out. Knock him out, as I recall. Meanwhile, we bicker and bitch about nothing. We talk about aborting the whole assignment. But then Captain Karkar turns up in the courtyard, ordering the boys to wash his car. He struts through the door, a man of obvious importance, and announces, We are going. Be ready in three days. We will leave at first light. Be ready, he orders. He's acting like he's our superior officer. He has got the voice, but lacks the presence. He wouldn't stand out in a crowd. He's short and stout, with the obligatory moustache, greasy swept-back hair, and a substantial paunch. Bit of a dick, really. And he never does admit to being from Pakistan military intelligence, though he must be. Never mind such things he would say imperiously if we queried his authenticity or background. Not important, not important. Next day, two British communication guys turn up, obviously ex-military, with their Land Rover and trailer, packed with our satellite dish and associated kit. These are early days in mobile satellite transmission technology. We will be the first, or amongst the first, to broadcast live from inside Afghanistan. The engineers keep themselves very much to themselves and reveal nothing of their background or previous operations, just like Captain Karkar. To be honest, we feel we're not being kept completely in the loop by the foreign desk in London, that we've been parachuted into someone else's infrastructure without being fully briefed. Whatever Afghanistan calls, and we pack a few belongings, toiletries, a change of clothes, Sony shortwave radio, camera and a few bits and bobs. The tape editor takes two cases of baked beans in a silver camera case. The rest of us think we should eat as our hosts and just take water with us. The day before we're due to leave, the gate boys and house boys plaster the land drovers with mud they've mixed up in a couple of buckets from dust and dirt on the courtyard floor. They cover the roof, the entire vehicle, in thick brown sludge, leaving only a small circle of clear glass on the windscreen. It's just possible to see clearly enough to drive. What's that all about? The army guys say it's so sunlight won't be reflected from the Land Rover's roofs and draw the attention of Russian aircraft protecting their withdrawing troops. If their pilots spot us, they'll bomb us. OK. At first light on the third day, in our beards, long shawa kameez shirts and peshwari turbans, we set off for Afghanistan, looking like Englishmen in fancy dress. A sinister convoy of three mud-covered Land Rovers, one towing a large, camouflaged satellite dish, all following Captain Karkar in his shiny Ford Fiesta hire car. He doesn't need the mud. He's leaving us at the gates of Afghanistan. He brings this time a uniformed soldier with him who sits silently in the front seat of our lead Land Rover as we trundle through the foggy early morning streets, prompting inquisitive stares from residents washing and cooking outside their homes. Children already set for school in their blue uniforms wave and smile. The smaller ones hide behind their mothers, glancing in wonder at the passing parade. The men look at each other and nod their heads, 
They know where we're going. We drive through the refugee camps with their displaced Afghanis. Some young boys wave at us, smiling and shouting. Others frown sullenly. Through small villages, just a handful of shacks on either side of the road. The same road transversed over the centuries by armies of hopeful conquerors going towards Afghanistan and by many of those same warriors coming back, depleted and defeated. As we near the Khyber Pass, going slowly through a village, we're in the back seat, feel a thud, hear a scream, we've hit something, or somebody, but through the muddied windows we catch only a glimpse of angry faces. The driver, our cameraman, breaks, but is urged on by Captain Karkar's assistant. Go, go, no stop, no stop, fuck, screams the cameraman as he drives on. I hit a woman, she just bloody came from nowhere. We should have bloody stopped, taken her to hospital, but we didn't, and the army guys explain later that it's quite common for impoverished villagers to throw themselves or their relatives at vehicles driven by Westerners. Cash is what they're after, compensation. Had we stopped, we would have been surrounded and held until we'd paid a ransom. We drive on into the Khyber Pass, 53 kilometres of hard road, and stop at Garakabrastan, cemetery of the White Skins, last resting place of hundreds of British soldiers killed trying to subdue the local Pathan warriors. The names of their regiments echo the colonial times, the King's Royal Rifles, the Royal Irish Regiment, stray dogs now nosing around the broken tombstones. The Khyber Pass is pretty barren. We continue along the rocky road towards Torgham, gateway to Afghanistan, a large village rather than a town. Major Kargar says we'll be under the protection of a group of Mujahideen fighters based near Jalalabad. They will ensure our safety and accompany us wherever we go. We halt a few metres from the ancient gates while the Major converses with someone through a hatch. He steps back, the gates slowly open, and we're introduced to our Mujahideen protectors, a ragtag bunch of warriors resembling Mexican bandits with beards and AK-47 assault rifles. Major Karkar has a brief conversation with the Mujahideen leader. Maybe he's finalising the financial aspects of our protection deal. I'm sure the Mujahideen are not going to be minding us for nothing. Then he turns and leaves, pootling off in his hire car without so much as a departing wave. We wonder when we'll see him again. And how much is hire car costing our company? Men close the gates. At last, we're in Afghanistan. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. I'm Vernon Mann. Join me next time to hear how we get on with the Mujahideen. Mujahideen.